Welcome to the Bold Speak Podcast. I'm Anthony Creedon. On this episode of the podcast, we'll further explore the Gospel of Matthew and its history by taking a look at the Pharisees, Sadducees, and so much more. And on the in or out, I'm going to talk a little baseball since I'm now back in my hometown of Cincinnati and my thoughts of what is sorely missing from this special sporting occasion. There's actually quite a bit. All that and more as we give them the bold speak. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to the Bold Speak podcast uh, as we continue our study of Condition of the Heart, which is a closer look at the Sermon on the Mount. Now, today we're going to continue our brief look at the history and context for the Gospel of Matthew, and this is going to set the stage for how we understand the Sermon on the Mount, as well as it'll give us a better understanding of what Matthew's goals are in writing the events the, the way that he does. And the other thing it's going to do is uh, give us a context for who Jesus is speaking to uh, so that we can better understand, you know, who the Pharisees and Sadducees are and thus better understand what Jesus is speaking about when he's speaking directly to them. All right. So all those things kind of happening in the Gospel of Matthew and the the history and context for it uh, helps us sort some of those things out. Now, to be honest with you, this this part of the lesson comes as a result of a a realization that I made when I was uh, a high school Bible teacher. I was doing lesson prep for the Gospel of Matthew, and I realized that I was talking about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the the scribes and the teachers of the law, without ever having introduced who they were or or where they came from. The reason for that was because, to be honest, there, there isn't much information out there. Aside from what scholars can piece together from the Bible, the writings of the Jewish historian by the name of Flavius Josephus give us some information And then there's a few other mentions of other uh, kind of groups of people and some of the Jewish political goings on in other various Jewish writings. But there really isn't a whole lot to go on out there. So who they are and what they meant to the community, those are vital points of insight for the Gospels. They really help us understand them. And so if Jesus is calling us to be different than them, it's probably important to know what that different looks like. So that's where we're going to take some time to gain those insights. Now, usually with these studies, we have an opportunity to go through sequential parts of Scripture so that we can kind of see a a pattern of what's being said there. Uh, But as we get a context for Matthew, we're going to do a little bit of jumping around today in various parts throughout the Gospel. So if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and grab that and open up to the Gospel of Matthew uh, so that you're ready to go there. If you do not have a Bible with you, that is perfectly fine. Don't worry about it. I will make sure to read these to you. So if you're driving in your car or just simply don't have access to a Bible right now. I've got you taken care of. And as always, I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible, but if you have a different translation, that is perfectly fine. I'd love for you to just follow along as you can. All right, so let's go ahead and jump in here, and let's get into the the history of the Jews under Rome. Now, if you happen to have your study guide with you, we're going to be getting on page five, right? The second part of page five, where we're getting into the Pharisees, Sadducees, and the Essenes. So go ahead and open up there. If you haven't had a chance to pick up our study guide, I would encourage you to do so. You can do that on our website, www.theboldspeak.com. If you click on the store there, you'll have access to it. You can purchase it for only $10, and that'll give you a chance to uh, take notes and uh, jot your own thoughts down so you can follow along and remember things as we reference back to them over the course of the study. Okay, so let's go ahead and get into this. 
Now, following the agreement that was made with the Romans, the, the Jewish leadership was once again challenged with how to appropriate their life and customs into a new life under Caesar and this budding democracy. How do they adapt? Uh, do they adapt? Do they separate? Uh, what does it mean to, to be a Jew under Rome? Now, all these questions were sort of swirling about the Jewish community, but this wasn't the first time that these questions had come up. Under Greek rule, the, the Jews faced the same issues when it came to maintaining their identity as Jews. When you can't get back to the temple, how do you worship or make sacrifices? Under the Greek rule, how do they maintain their Jewish heritage, their traditions, their religious practices? The result was several differing ideas amongst the lay people and the priests. And these differences caused factions to form amongst the leadership of the Jews and how the people responded to these leaders. The first group was the Pharisees. Pharisees were a lay movement that centered around the Law of Moses and what is known as the Oral Torah. The Oral Torah was a collection of laws that would later be written down, but dealt with the further interpretation of Mosaic Law. So, say for instance, you have a situation where your parents needed financial help, but the only money you had was the money intended for your tithe to God. According to Oral Law, the donated money to the Lord would supersede the need of the physical parents, and therefore that money could be kept from them. And while these kinds of adjustments to the law seemed helpful, in many cases, they were not. In fact, sometimes they were abused. In Matthew 15, this very issue comes up when the Pharisees try to accuse the disciples of Jesus for not following the law. Alright, so let's go ahead and look at Matthew 15. We're going to focus on verses 1 to 6. Alright, in Matthew 15, 1 to 6, it says this. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Here what we read is, uh, Jesus challenging the oral interpretation of the law as to whether or not it's godly. And see, this became the problem with the Pharisees. During the early days of the captivities of the people of God, Babylonian and Assyrian, the lay people had made an emergency plan to address the, the various crises of faith that they had experienced, and this allowed them to survive. But in the process, these men of the law had adapted their oral traditions to reflect more their own opinions and agendas rather than the true spirit and nature of the law of God. This meant that over time, the people were held under the will of the Pharisees and their interpretations rather than being taught to honor God and his created order. This made the Pharisees prideful, boastful, power-hungry. They would use the law to manipulate and control the people of God rather than guide them to relationships. And this is of primary importance in the Gospels and a major issue that Jesus deals with regularly. 
All right, so that's kind of the deal with the Pharisees, very focused on oral law and tradition and very much serving their own agenda and not God's. All right, let's get to the Sadducees. The Sadducees, in contrast to the Pharisees, had really little use for oral tradition. In fact, they had little use for anything outside of Mosaic law in the first five books of the Bible. According to them, the writings and the prophets had little to do with living as the Jews, and so they rejected the importance of the oral law and many of the ideas promoted in the other Bible books. For instance, we're going to take a look at Matthew 22, verses 23 to 33. All right, Matthew 22, verses 23 to 33 say this. The same day Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. What we see here is that because the Sadducees had little use for any of the books outside of the Mosaic books, that's the first five books of the Bible, they didn't believe many of the common beliefs and ideas and theologies associated with Judaism at the time, uh, ideas that the Pharisees themselves promoted. Alright, so because of this, you start to see who the Sadducees are as a people, very much devoted to strict Mosaic law. Now, from the perspective of the, the common Jew, the Sadducees were the most elite leadership of the people and really perceived as pretentious and overly ritualistic compared to the Pharisees. Their realm was primarily the temple and ensuring that the temple worship was followed in very strict adherence. As you can imagine, this led to no shortage of conflict between the Pharisees and Sadducees as they both kind of struggled for control of the people. But there were also some who wanted nothing to do with leadership of the political and ideological views of the Jewish nation. Some uh, they wanted to distance themselves from the whole thing altogether, and those were the Essenes. While not kind of directly mentioned anywhere in Scripture, the Essenes' presence is felt throughout the Gospels. Identified by the Jewish historian Josephus, the Essenes were a community that cropped up during the rule of the Greeks after the Greek rulers attempted to make everyone Greek in a process known as Hellenization. The Sadducees appeared to buy into many of the Greek philosophies. The Pharisees were more concerned with the translation of the law, but the Essenes, they attempted to remove themselves from Greek culture altogether in order to maintain the purity of Jewish belief and history. And now this resulted in many Jewish Essenes living outside of the major cities and retreating into the wilderness. 
Now, while it, it can't be said for certain, the Gospels seem to pretty clearly indicate that the most certain example of an Essene is John the Baptist. Just take a look at Matthew chapter 3, specifically verses 1 and verses 4 to 5. Matthew 3 verse 1 says this, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And then Matthew 3 verses 4 to 5 say this, Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. Now what we see in these passages is that John had distanced himself from the Roman community as the Essenes had done with the Greeks. This meant that John wasn't influenced by the Pharisees, Sadducees, or any political official. For John, it was faith in God, pure and simple. And this is why there are several places that you see John interacting with the Pharisees and Sadducees in a very conflictual way. John didn't believe that the Pharisees or Sadducees were properly representing God as they were too politically motivated and motivated by their own agendas. Alright, so those are the three groups there, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. Alright, so those three factions were there. Uh, Josephus mentions a fourth faction, but doesn't really give us a whole lot of information on them, so there's not much we can say there. Alright, but there are other sub-factions that you see throughout the Gospels. You read about scribes, uh, teachers of the law, rabbis, but all of them typically fall within those three major categories. All right, so as long as you know who the Pharisees, Sadducees, and the Essenes are, you have a pretty good picture of the major uh, Jewish factions that existed at the time of Jesus. All right, now that we have a, a solid footing on the history of God's people leading to Matthew, Let's go ahead and jump into the Gospel of Matthew itself and gain some insights into who Matthew is and his purpose for writing the Gospel. Alright, so we've now moved on to page 6 in the study guide with the heading of the Gospel of Matthew. Question 6. Matthew is one of the Synoptic Gospels, along with Mark and Luke. Synoptic is a word that uh, means the same view, right? Sin as in synonym, same, and optic as in view. And that is to say that Matthew, Mark, and Luke cover the same content in each of the Gospels. The events are the same, uh, many of the parables are the same, there's a lot of similar content between the three, right? And so they're synoptic because they carry the same view, all right? Let's move on to question seven. The Gospel of Matthew was written around the time of 50 AD. Now the significance of that is that means it's somewhere around the realm of 14 to 17 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And that means that the book itself is relatively new uh, in regard to the events that they explain. And the significance of this is that if Matthew is writing about these events, their truthfulness could be discredited because they're not long from the time that Jesus actually existed. And so the fact that it was written around 50 AD helps us to solidify Matthew's gospel and his account as valid because it could have been very easily discredited. Right? And so knowing the date of when a book is written can, uh, can help us a lot in um, kind of making a proof for the significance and importance of that book itself. All right, so let's go on to question eight. The author of Matthew was Matthew, also known as Levi, 
who was a tax collector. Now, this is sometimes a little bit confusing, so we need to clarify. If you compare Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, with Mark chapter 2, verse 14, and then Luke chapter 5, verse 27, what you'll see is the same account is given, but in Matthew's account, he refers to himself as Matthew. For Mark and Luke, it refers to him as Levi. So what's up with the two names? Well, quite simply, Matthew is a tax collector, which means he t collects taxes on behalf of the Greeks, but collects taxes from the Jews because he himself is a Jew, which means his name Levi would be his Jewish name, and Matthew would be his Greek name because he also worked for the Greeks and thus the Romans. All right, so that's why he would have two different names. Okay, so let's go ahead and move to question nine. Matthew's Gospel was written with three major themes in mind, all right? So there's three major themes we're working with when we're dealing with the Gospel of Matthew. The first is the connection between the Old and New Testament. You'll find as you go through the, the Gospel of Matthew that Matthew is very interested in connecting Old Testament prophecy to New Testament realities. In fact, the Gospel of Matthew contains several, far more than the other Gospels, Old Testament quotes because Matthew wants to make sure that you see that the Old and New Testaments are one cohesive story all leading to Jesus. All right, so it's a major theme for Matthew to introduce Old Testament scripture to support New Testament realities. All right, so that's the connection between the Old and New Testament. The second is Israel reduced to one, and this one takes a little bit of explanation. One of Matthew's major ideas that he promotes throughout his gospel is that Jesus succeeded where Israel failed. And so uh, Matthew puts together and assembles the gospel in such a way that you can see Jesus's victory while at the same time being reminded of Israel's failures throughout the Old Testament. That is to say that Matthew wants, to, wants you, the reader, to know that Jesus succeeded and, and gained salvation and life on behalf of God's people because he's making up for the mistakes in the sins of those who went before him. All right, so Jesus is many times uh, placed in a situation in the Gospel of Matthew and, and spoken of in a situation that is directly referring to Old Testament realities. All right, so this is kind of the, the next level of that uh, connection between the Old and the New Testament, the idea that Jesus is Israel reduced to one man. Okay, all right, so let's look at the third uh, major theme that we've got here, and that is the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, in uh, kind of strict theological circles, this is referred to as the eschatological reality of Matthew, and it really is kind of the main uh, prompt for Matthew and what he wants to communicate. Drawing connections between the Old and the New Testament, and, and then showing that Jesus succeeds or Israel fails, leads you to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the coming kingdom. He is exactly what God desired in regard to uh, the end of suffering of sin, and he is the fulfillment and culmination that will eventually be uh, when the new creation comes and all things come to an end. That is to say, Jesus is what this whole thing revolves around. 
And so Matthew wants you to see that Jesus was the point. He was the purpose from the very beginning. He is the fulfillment of every covenant that God has ever made because he was the plan to save all creation. All right, and so Matthew really wants to put that in front of you, and you'll see that theme repeated several times and, and addressed several times in Matthew's gospel. All right, so those are the three themes there. Connection between the Old and New Testament, Israel reduced to one, that is Jesus is Israel reduced to one, and the kingdom of God is at hand. All right? All right, let's finish up here with question 10. How do these themes affect the way we read the Gospel of Matthew? The importance of these themes is that we now have a framework with which to, to read Matthew. We now have a general idea of what Matthew's goals and purposes were. And because we have that, we can start to draw connections that maybe we wouldn't see in a, just sort of a cursory reading of Matthew's Gospel. And this is going to be especially helpful for us in the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus is going to draw from a lot of Old Testament realities and really point to Jesus' fulfillment of these Old Testament realities as he, he kind of brings the connections together for us. All right, so understanding those themes is going to be extremely helpful for us uh, to better understand the Sermon on the Mount and really take a, a, a close look uh, at what Jesus is communicating. Now, at the end of this lesson, you'll see there's a little section there called For Your Consideration. And in this section, what I want you to do is take a little time on your own to reflect on these two questions before we get to lesson two. All right. And so uh, if you've got that study guide, you'll see those there. Take a little moment to, to kind of digest some of those and think through them and jot down your answers as uh, those answers and, and those questions to consider will be extremely helpful in better understanding lesson two. All right. So they're there to kind of help to frame your mind and get you ready for the next lesson. All right, everyone. So uh, it's opening weekend of baseball on the horizon, and I am pumped. Uh, but there's something about opening day in baseball that has always kind of bothered me because there's, I don't know, I just feel like something's missing from the celebrations. And maybe it's just because I was raised in the city where professional baseball was born, or maybe because baseball was bred into me from my earliest days as a child. I don't know. Either way, there is something I feel must be claimed. What is that? Well, that's the topic of this edition of The Inner Out. All right, young man. To me, there is nothing like it. It's the first sign that the cold, great gray ceiling of the Midwest is finally lifting and warmer weather is on the way. It was the light at the end of the tunnel as I knew school was in its final stretch. And it was the glorious beginning of a sport made in America. Baseball is a sport rich in tradition with a long history woven into American culture. Presidents throw out first pitches. Cities like Cincinnati have parades on opening day. And as for as long as I can remember, opening day is a day where nothing but baseball matters. Even as an adult, I know many friends and relatives who take the day off on opening day. When I was a high school teacher, I would have numerous students absent as they joined their family for opening day festivities. Which leads me to what I think is missing from opening day. The National Acknowledgement that it's opening day. That is to say, why isn't this an American holiday? 
I mean, think about it. We celebrate the birthday of presidents, we celebrate the fact that the calendar has increased another year, and many other holidays where the government is shut down and schools are closed. But on the day when we celebrate our national sport, nothing. I mean, it's surprising to me that many companies haven't taken matters into their own hands, seeing how so many people take off work for this joyous occasion. Now, you may be asking, well, all right, what's the big deal? Why is this such an issue? All right, well, here it is. Hebrews chapter 10, Acts chapter 2, and many other places in the scriptures speak about the importance of fellowship. They speak of uh, building each other up in love and good works. The Bible states that we should be in relationship with each other. Something that, honestly, I haven't seen much lately. Have you? While I'm sure there are multiple reasons for what seems to be an increase in division amongst us, and, and while I'm sure that everybody probably has one particular reason that they think that's the case, what I do know is that it's happening. We've become increasingly hostile toward each other. So, what if we just took a day as an, a national holiday that is focused on play? Right, let's have a day where we focus not on politics or agendas, but on having fun together. Right, and that is what a baseball national holiday would bring. A day to stop and just enjoy the fact that we have the privilege of playing a game and watching a game. I honestly think it might do us some good. So as for baseball opening day, I am 100% all in. And I honestly hope that one day soon, our country can be all in on opening day too. That's going to do it for this edition of the Bold Speak Podcast. Thank you again for listening. Make sure you connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at forward slash The Bold Speak. Check out our website at www.theboldspeak.com. And make sure you subscribe, like, and share this podcast and many other media features that we offer at Bold Speak. Until next time, everyone, I'm Anthony Creedon, and that is The Bold Speak.